0: Welcome to episode 543 with my guest Marissa Esquibel. My name is Paul Gilmartin, this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in your head, not just your head, my head too, Uh, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling, I'm not a therapist, it's not a doctor's office. It's more like a carnival with It's more like a carnival with sadness and trauma and hopefully some laughter. Uh, the website for this show is metalpod.com. Go there, check it out. There's all kinds of ways you can support the show, uh, financially or non-financially. You can become a monthly donor through Patreon, which is super important for keeping the show going. You can do it for as little as a dollar a month. And uh, we've recently added some um, bonus content for uh, certain levels of donation. Um, We posted two videos of uh interviews the interviews have aired already but these are videos of it one of them is the interview with duncan trussell which is uh one of my favorites so go check that out um you can do one-time donations through paypal you can support the show non-financially by filling out surveys spreading the word about the podcast through social media subscribing to the podcast um Leave it a nice review on iTunes. All kinds. And if you want to sabotage the show, go leave a shitty review on iTunes. Unsubscribe. Try to delete your survey. Ask for your money back. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Laura and uh, about her depression she writes it feels like i'm running away from my life feeling deep shame and regret about it but also conflicting comfort and hiding away from every type of responsibility holy shit did you nail that feeling oh my god i just love it when you guys find the words i can't find about her anorexia, every time I manage to take a bite, it feels like I'm faking it. About dissociating, whenever it comes, whenever it happens, it feels like I'm underwater, unable to come up, and everyone else is floating on the surface talking to me. I can hear their muffled voices and kind of understand them, but I'm utterly unavailable, unable to communicate anything back to them. That is, until I come up again. Wow. Thank you for that. This is an email I got uh, from a guy named Stefano, and he writes, Hello, I'm Stefano, an Italian business tycoon, investor, and philanthropist, the vice chairman, chief executive officer, and the single largest shareholder of Walgreens Boot Alliance. Let me pause right there. Stefano, if you're listening, I have never heard of you, and yet I have waited my whole life to hear from you. That may not make sense to you, but I feel it in my heart. I love that you are not afraid to identify yourself as a tycoon. And I I salute not only you, but your raccoon coat. I've never heard of the Walgreens Boot Alliance, but I am 100% on board for anything that brings together people that wear boots. He writes, I gave away 25% of my personal wealth to charity and I also pledged to give away the rest of 25% this year, 2021, thank you for reminding me what year it is, to individuals because of the COVID-19 heartbreak. Heartbreak is such an accurate term to use for COVID. People have used the word pan- pandemic, which which I think is really, really inaccurate I think heartbreak describes it and as much as I want that two million dollars and I and I do intend to to get it from you um, I should let you know that I have spent over three million dollars on my medications at Walgreens and so, I'm actually in the hole a million after you give me the two. So, if you could just bump that up, I would really, really appreciate it. You got a lot here, Stefano, for me to think about. The boots, your raccoon coat. And after I read this last week, um, I said, I'm going to sleep on it. And by that I meant I, I printed out 400 copies of this email and I've used it as a pillow. And two things I've discovered. One, I drool in my sleep. And the other is that it's hard to find a good chiropractor. But I appreciate you taking the time to share that, Stefano. And um, I hope that not only are you in your raccoon coat right now, but I hope you're waving a pennant at a, at a football game. We are sponsored this week, as always, by BetterHelp.com, online counseling. Why would you not want to try online counseling if you've never done it before? Why would you say, nah, I prefer to get in my car and drive through traffic and find parking? Do it in your chair. Do it in your couch. Do it on your back patio. Do it on your front porch. Let the neighbors hear what's going on with you. might bring you closer together. If you've never tried it, check it out. Go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. And then just fill out a questionnaire. And if they feel that they have a counselor who is a good fit for you, they will match you up with one. And you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it's uh, if it's your thing. And you need to be over 18. And then finally, this is uh, from the struggle in a sentence uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself danger. And about her bulimia, she writes, You're never going to look the part. It's like a band kid trying out for cheerleading.
1: I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I, I couldn't have felt any lure.
0: Grief, guilt, shame.
1: Why wasn't I born a girl?
0: There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. Let humans do this to each other. Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it.
1: I thought it was all about me.
0: I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked
1: in a dentist chair.
0: And my body doesn't quite...
1: I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail.
0: Fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did... There's a comfort in the scars for me. Was in service of
1: OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame.
0: You know what to takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen
1: to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left.
0: (laughs) I am here with Marissa Esquivel, who is a therapist, and we're going to talk about codependence. Uh, You have a podcast devoted to it called Codepend Dummy. Yes. Such an important topic. Mm -hmm. And so complicated.
1: So complicated. Yeah. What?
0: Where, where would be a good place? So why don't we start out by kind of defining what qualifies as, as codependence?
1: Yes. So there are so many terms and so many ways that it manifests. And I really just want to, this is my, the definition that I have come to from my own experience And if I'm stealing it from somebody, somebody please reach out. But for me, Paul, my codependency, what it looked like was I put the feelings, thoughts, and needs of others above my own. And now reflecting back, I see how that was an unconscious, right? I didn't know it consciously, but that was an unconscious attempt to fulfill my own feelings, thoughts, and needs. I didn't know it. But I thought that if you're happy, then I will be happy.
0: I can relax. If the room is at peace, right. my job is done.
1: Right. And I had actually a unconscious oath throughout my 20s where, especially with men, I would I I had this packed with them and I would say, I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable <laughs> in hopes, right, unconsciously, that I I might be comfortable soon.
0: What are the common sources of codependency?
1: So childhood trauma, which again, it's like, oh, being born? Like everyone, everyone then can, can join the codependent club, but childhood trauma. And again, for me, I grew up with a codependent relationship being modeled by my mom and dad.
0: Was your dad an addict or alcoholic?
1: He Or workaholic. He actually, in this dynamic, was the codependent, is the codependent, loving codependent. And my mom loves to gamble. And she is high-functioning. She has done very well. Both my parents have done very well. But my paternal grandfather grew up in the Depression. He was very frugal. He didn't believe in the air conditioning. He did, like, it didn't exist as a utility. He passed that down to my dad And so I grew up with a very frugal, money conscious father and a gambler. And she, you know, she likes to shop and she likes to indulge in self care, which is, you know, but two extremes made for a very anxious child, especially around money. So I remember my dad, he told me one time, this is like in sixth grade. We are walking to the car. I don't know I don't know if I wanted to get something or wanted us to, to pay or do something. And he said, Marissa, we are living paycheck to paycheck. Which was not true, Paul. That was not that was not true at all. But to him it was sure. I think. And who knows what spending had gone on that month or year with my mom. And then yeah, I saw her going to Vegas buying us nice things. We got Tiffany & Co. jewelry in middle school. I don't know what we needed a Tiffany & Co. bracelet for at the time. But, yeah, so I was just very conscious of both of their needs, both of their thoughts, both of their feelings. And my sisters and I, we took on different roles, but I really – that was that was what I witnessed. And so – I had experiences with them. I witnessed their relationship. I think being a young woman, I was taught to really be thoughtful and mindful of others.
0: Bury your needs and smile.
1: Yes. And so, yeah, going back to your original question sources, right? Experiences during childhood at home, in school.
0: Do you feel like your uh, parents... uh, parentified you or did you kind of take it upon yourself because you sensed tension between them and you wanted that to be relaxed
1: both and so I think that I was given too much information at times for a you know 10 12 15 year old to know what or how to really navigate that information and then also right Sometimes yeah they would be arguing about something that was so illogical so irrational
0: Any any examples any snapshots from childhood I, I I'm a big fan of details
1: Yeah I just I just remember like if we were driving somewhere and my mom would start to get upset my dad was really big on being punctual That, too. And my mom, you know, there's, you know, five or ten minutes late, no big deal. And again, you know, being the child in that environment, I think I tried to be punctual and then tried to hurry my mom along so Mm -hmm. there was no fight. And I can't remember a specific time, but I just recall that they might be arguing about how long it took her to get in the car. And I'd be like, hey, 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 mom you know, you didn't really need to start doing a project five minutes before we left. (laughs) And so next time, we'll just be more mindful. Okay, Dad? Okay? Okay. (laughs) And then we'd get to our destination. You know, that's a very innocent example. And I think that it went from that to, you know, arguments around money or... Yeah, my sisters, how they were parenting us, what – yeah, I think a lot about about money, but I can't remember specifics.
0: So it'd be fair to say that your dad was uh, structured almost to the point of rigid kind of in his approach to life, or is that not a fair assessment?
1: He's a covert, rigid, structured person. Person,
0: he gives the the appearance of uh, somebody who's kind of uh, relaxed calm, and loose,
1: calm, easygoing, yeah, and also anxious, and yeah, I think I I picked up on a lot of those traits, and then again to try and minimize or or like rebalance, just get some homeostasis. I would I remember right you know, my budding codependency, even when we ate out, I was very mindful of what I was ordering. You know, I didn't want to waste food. I didn't want to waste money. And if we went shopping, right, I had in the back of my head like paycheck to paycheck. (laughs) So (laughs) I would hesitate to make big purchases. Yeah, just really trying to to balance uh, these two needs. And that also, you know, I I talk about childhood experiences, but that also came up with teachers at school, coaches, parents of other children, my friends. I'm also a twin, so she and I are very close, so I think we were really codependent. To a healthy extent, to an unhealthy extent.
0: Talk about where the difference between healthy and unhealthy connection, especially to a, a twin. I've, I've had people who listen to the show before ask uh, if, if I could cover that topic.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. No, I'm definitely going to have an episode. I think I'm going to have my twin on so we can really just try and recall different experiences. but. It's, it's so nice. It's such a unique experience, but it's so nice to, right, the first day of school, every new sport that your parents sign you up for, every party, you have a sidekick. You're not having to walk up to that door and knock. You're not having to meet new teammates, all of them being new. There's just no solo experience, which is really nice.
0: You just have to deal with them calling you the wrong name.
1: Yeah. And, well, you know, we're fraternal, so. Um, oh, enough.
0: okay. You're not identical. No,
1: thank God. I mean, not thank God. But, yeah, I think that would that might have added more codependence. But
0: Do you sometimes wish that you had been identical so you could have seen a kind of an, an image of yourself? I think I because think, because I think a lot of people wonder, what would it have been like to have an identical twin? Would I have been able to get an objective uh, sense of what I looked like walking through the world, even though clearly twins have different personalities. Right.
1: I think I mean the perks of having someone take different test subjects, you know, like the double trouble like playing people, I think that would have been fun but having a mirror it wasn't yeah i never had that but definitely you know i think we both had our strengths and weaknesses in school and being able to substitute for each other
0: that so so nice. you would pretend to be the other person and take a test for for the other one
1: uh that would that would have been my wish if we were identical I but gotcha. we couldn't we never we couldn't look like we look like sisters but I not gotcha. twins okay but yeah, that was that's the healthier part of being so close. And then yeah, I just remember that really being a part of my identity and in high school and college we went to different schools, so that was really hard. And I don't know, I at in high school, I definitely think and thought that my twin was cooler than me. So I relied on her for status invites, etc.
0: Gracie, uh, did you ever share that with your twin that she, that you felt like she was cooler than you?
1: Yes, and, we, and I I think she knew she was prized for being. Yeah, you are you are bringing me back. So when we went through puberty, that was when we looked really fraternal. I put on a bunch of weight. I got way taller than her and she was still this very thin, skinny, you know, she looked like a prepubescent boy until we were like 16. And so that was hard, being compared and wanting the status that she gave me for being cooler and thinner and prettier, but also knowing that she was cooler, thinner, and prettier than me. And she knew it too. So sometimes when we got into fights, she would... That was a, that was a, that would that would shut me down pretty easily.
0: Was she ever jealous that you had physically become a woman ahead of her or was that something that was
1: It wasn't priced? Yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. So relying on her for status, for invites, and yeah, I started to really develop this whole inside of me with my insecurities and so relying on her to yeah keep me in in certain groups to be seen a certain way at school yeah I definitely knew by myself and of myself I wouldn't have been invited or included in the same groups or rooms without her
0: did you ever feel like I'm a a a burden on her
1: um We shared a car, uh, because we're twins, and we were living paycheck to paycheck, apparently. And my parents asked, who wants to drive? Because only one of us was going to get a license. I don't know why that, yeah, I don't know why we did that. But she volunteered, and she was my chauffeur, which, again, that was a lot of responsibility on her, But, yeah, I definitely felt bad being so reliant on her for rides. And, yeah, looking back, that just, I don't know why we didn't have two licenses. Yeah.
0: When did you finally get your license?
1: I was 22.
0: Wow, that's a long (laughs) time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I went to UC Santa Barbara. So I rode my bike. I rode the bus. I walked. There just wasn't, there wasn't a need.
0: So talk about parentification, you know, whether it was your experience or not. Um, I think it's something a lot of people experience in childhood, and they may never even know that they were parentified, or they find out really late in life, wow, I shouldn't have been privy to that information, or I shouldn't have felt uh, emotionally responsible for my emotionally fragile parent.
1: mm mm-hmm. Yeah, so parentification for me is it's typically unconscious, right? No two parents, no child. There's no team huddle. There's no family meeting where we all decide, Marissa, you are going to referee when we argue, right? There's no, it's never said. These are unspoken nonverbal, passive rules that start to develop in families.
0: It's it's the movie that casts itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what role is left? Right. Okay. Right. I'll take this one.
1: Exactly. And so parentification, yeah, it's this unconscious agreement that starts to develop in families where a child... Slowly, right, if we're looking at a hierarchy, like a family tree, so we have mom and dad on top, mom and mom, dad and dad, non-binary, non-binary parents to be all-inclusive. But we have typically two parents and then children underneath, right? That is the structure of the family tree. And I'm doing this visual for all the listeners, but I hope you guys can see it. I'm doing a visual for Paul. And then slowly what happens is... A child will be put on a pedestal and like slowly somehow, right, they just start to rise up and they are equal to or potentially could have more power in a family than a parent. And sometimes, right, a parent will actually stoop to a child's level Mm -hmm. and then the dynamics and the hierarchy is all distorted so confusing. But once we kind of start to move around, it's really hard to go back to any semblance of a typical family hierarchy.
0: One of the things that I see a lot is the parent, and it it seems to be uh, typically the mother, seeks affection and comfort from her child. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the father is an alcoholic or a workaholic, but he's just not there and the mother will say, you know, can you come sleep in bed with me tonight? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, the child feels a little bit uncomfortable, but they're also glad that they can be there for their mom, but it really fucks them up in terms of intimacy right. uh, later in their life, mm-hmm. letting people get Close the fear of being suffocated by by somebody's needs right um, talk about healthy versus unhealthy affection from a parent to a child
1: mm-hmm. right, so you know parentification, I think that it can be right what you're starting to shed light on it can be physical parentification, emotional parentification, even spiritual, right? Like I know some clients, some listeners, even I, right? In high school, my mom really tried to keep us continuing to attend church. My dad wasn't that enthusiastic about it. So 5.30 on Sunday evening, does anybody want to go? We're like, oh let me let me fill that hole let me fill that void where right typically parentification happens where a parental role is right there's a void and so healthy intimacy right with a child is intimacy affection with no parentification involved right Which really means that the parents' feelings, wants, and needs are being fulfilled, hopefully, by a partner. And if they're in an open relationship, other partners. But it's just that if I'm inviting my child to sleep with me at night, it's for any other reason besides loneliness because my partner isn't there. I don't know. You know, maybe if the child's sick, if a kid's sick, yes, yes. Come if if, if it's mommy.
0: for the child, the child's having a bad nightmare, they're afraid, whatever. Totally different situation than mommy sad. Yes, come sleep with mommy. Right. That to me will do a number right. on a on a kid. And and how do you, you know, you? I would imagine parents don't want to present themselves as sh- superhuman. You want your child to see that. You experience emotions like everybody else. You're not a robot. But how do you find that line between making them privy to the stuff that's going to be too much for them and also showing your human side? That seems like a really difficult line Mm -hmm. to strike, especially if you're a parent who didn't have healthy boundaries modeled for you.
1: So, so difficult. So, you know... It's such a typical answer, but it depends. And I would just encourage, right, if a parent's thinking about sharing information that they sense would be helpful for their child to know, it has to be information that I think all members in a family should also be able to know as well. So if you tell a child, hey, there's something I'm going to tell you. It's a secret. Don't tell mom. No.
0: That's super, super fucked up. Right. I know uh, people who as kids were taken in the car while one parent was cheating on the other parent mm. and told, you know, don't don't tell mom. I mean, what a load to put on a kid.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean
0: obviously that's an extreme example, but um you know, there there are conversations about, you know, the partner's sexual prowess mm-hmm. or he doesn't touch me, or she's frigid, or whatever and i i can't for the life of me understand why a parent would want to share that with a child or think that that's appropriate
1: mm-hmm. yeah again i think i think codependency and a lot of relationship issues spring from a lot of unconscious behavior Right. Like, I don't think that that parent is thinking consciously, what can I do? What can I tell my child to really, to really, but it again, like we, we get into these relationships, these patterns start to form, and it's so hard to get back to any semblance of healthy. And we just stay and do things. But yeah, if there's any, information from a parent that sounds like, looks like, appears like it's needing to be a secret mm-hmm. to a child, that's that's the big, no, red flag.
0: One of the, the things that I sometimes use to gauge whether something is appropriate or not is, is I ask myself, you know, would that person do it uh, with uh, another couple present? Mm-hmm. Or would that person do something with their partner present? Would right. they do that or say that? And that's usually a pretty good guide as to uh, is this a good idea right. or not?
1: Yeah. Would another functioning adult stamp right. approval on this? Right. Yeah. We don't judge that with a kid who seems mature, right. eager to help, right? Who's Who's been supportive, We don't base what we tell that child off that child's behavior which i think a lot of parents again unconsciously think oh well they're mature Mm -hmm. they've been supportive they get it it's like no they don't they don't get it they're a child
0: i was i don't know maybe seven or eight when my mom started confiding in me about how unhappy she was in her marriage Mm -hmm. and how she wanted to to leave and I just remember feeling such a burden that it was up to me. I was the last uh, chance to to keep the family right. uh, together, which uh, that's a that's a lot to mm-hmm. to put on a kid. And I'm I'm sure the intimacy issues that I will probably work through for the rest of of my life um, in in part were affected. By that. And, but I also remember there was a part of me that felt like a grown up and, and that I liked that part of it. Because mm-hmm. um, I think kids are looking for anything that makes them feel older.
1: Right. And I also, right, she didn't say it, but in that conversation, right, there is this unspoken my thoughts feelings and needs, especially my needs, are not being fulfilled right now, little Paul. And being a child, you have no idea how to tell her, well, go talk to dad about it. Right. Right? You have no, you just, you're just a sponge and you soak that up. And so then, right, it's not said, but the rest of that day, you know, the next day you start to slowly make these observations and you look at different holes to fill different voids that are not being addressed. And, and you, again, like unconsciously, everybody just starts to take that on. And then, yeah, it just leads to a lot of issues with intimacy.
0: Let's talk about codependence in in friendships. Uh, I put a question out on, on Twitter. Uh, anybody have any questions about codependence? And this mm-hmm. person asked a really great question. They said, um, how about people who are in recovery? You know, maybe a 12-step support group where service is an important part of the recovery. Mm-hmm. How do you differentiate service from it? crossing over into codependence. I was like, wow, that—that that is another area where right. there's a fine line right. between.
1: So in my experience of codependency and those who have helped with it, codependence as a group, we are all about extremes, right? Like that oath that I had, that was really extreme. Like, I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Like, where's that? Like, calm down. Like, like that's, you don't have to, you don't have to be this uncomfortable, so someone's comfortable. And so, what, for codependence, someone tells us to do something and we take that to an extreme, right? So in 12 step groups, they're all about service, sponsorship, you know, answering calls at midnight, I think is like the stereotypical, Mm -hmm. you, you know, vision that we have in movies
0: taking any commitment that's available oh well I'll be the person that brings snacks and I'll set the chairs up and I'll take the chairs down and I'm going to resent everybody
1: yes and so I sense that the difference between being of service and codependency is right I think we have to get it's okay it's not an easy answer But I think we have to ask, like, what are my motives? And I I
0: love that. That's such a great thing to ask yourself. What's my intent? Right. What am I looking to get out of this?
1: Like way down underneath all these layers. And so if I'm saying yes to setting up the chairs, bringing the food and oh gosh, what was the other
0: taking the, the chairs down?
1: Taking the chairs down. If I'm doing all of this, right, my first like well why? Like what is my motive? I'll be like, well, they asked and I wanna be I wanna be a good twelve-step person. And it's like, okay. Well why did they ask? And why do you wanna be a good twelve-step person? It's like, well, they asked because nobody else is doing all these roles. And it's like, okay, well I mean there's your answer. Like can you delegate two of these? Like will this meeting survive if you are the only one setting this all up? Right. But I think codependence like we don't think critically. We don't assess. We just say yes, we build that resentment and then, you know, sometimes that leads to burning out or completely going AWOL, which isn't of service to anybody.
0: It seems like catastrophization, is that a a word, Mm -hmm. is is also uh, at play there. Because I think in the codependent's mind, they're like, well, if nobody brings snacks and the chairs aren't taken down, this meeting will evaporate. It can't continue. It never occurs to them, you know, adults can go hungry for an hour. Uh, We can just uh, kind of... Play it by ear. Maybe everybody puts their chairs away instead of one person doing it. Right. Uh, Maybe there's somebody out there that really wants to take a commitment, but is afraid to raise their hand. And maybe they need that 15-second silence Mm -hmm. where I'm not raising my hand to take the commitment, and they begin to feel like, well, maybe I should be more a part of this group.
1: Yeah. But looking at, like, what is my motive? And see, now that you're talking... I know I volunteered for a lot of things because, yeah, in my codependency, if people didn't have snacks for an hour, right? Like what happened in your family when people got hangry? I don't know. but Maybe unconsciously I'm trying to avoid that. Or
0: or I'm a bad person if I don't take this right. because I physically and logistically can do it. So right. I should do it because somebody needs it.
1: Right. It's like, well, how come you think you're a bad person? Let's look at that. Or, yeah, I'm a bad 12-stepper. It's like, really? Because you're not volunteering for everything? If you're not volunteering for everything means you're a bad 12-stepper, We need to look at what the definition of a good and bad 12-stepper is for you because you're – it just, again, like these extremes and these definitions start to come up. So, yeah, just really reflecting on motives.
0: And it's such a revelation, I think, when the, the codependent begins to realize that their motives, in many ways, were um more selfish than they imagined. Not healthy selfish, mm-hmm. but unhealthy selfish, that right. I want to feel uh, morally superior by being the person who does the most. Then I can play the role of the martyr, which I'm very used to playing. Right. And then I don't have to look at my part in things. Right. Um, I I get a sense of control mm-hmm. from being the person who's in charge and then I I get to resent everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, there are are so many things that are difficult to delve down into that take months if not years to reveal themselves by peeling away that that layer of the onion of saying, what was I really looking to get out of it? And one of the reasons why I'm such a big fan of support groups is you get that feedback right. from somebody, whether it's somebody who's mentoring you, or you just hear somebody else share a version of your story that you relate to. And they say, you know, and then suddenly I realized that I was, uh, you know, doing this for a different reason right. than, than the one that I had thought right. I was doing.
1: Yeah. And you're like, oh, my God. I know that I didn't think I was selfish. I thought I was the most selfless person on the planet at times. And just such a loyal girlfriend, such a good employee, such an amazing daughter and sister. You know, I was a great driver to fellow drivers. Mm-hmm. Uh, amazing Starbucks Customer to the baristas because I my codependency just ran rampant, mm-hmm. but
0: yeah, if you've ever said thank you so much, <laughs> get to a Coda meeting right now. If yeah. that's the tone that you say it, as if this person just purred, pulled you out of a burning building,
1: yeah. No, I mean, I just it was yeah, it, it ran deep. But looking at right this rule that I had, I will be uncomfortable. So you will be comfortable, right? Dot, dot, dot. And hopefully soon I will feel comfortable, right? That really was my motive at the end of all of it. I was sacrificing and people pleasing and putting the needs of others above my own. But like at the very end of it, I was just hoping, hoping, hoping that I would be fulfilled too, and so it is, it's like this roundabout, mm-hmm. very selfish and self-centered, but that's, you know, I talk about on my podcast, we were raised, reinforced, and rewarded to put the needs of others above our own. And it's so hard to see that ego, selfish motive, because you've just mm-hmm. been doing it for decades,
0: And it's so hard to step out of that role, you know, when the family has achieved this uh, performance of the play with the unwritten rules and roles that everybody is used to. And, you know, there's that saying in recovery, uh, when people pleasers stop pleasing people, people aren't pleased. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so there's going to be that time where you're like, no, I can't take you to the airport. And they're like, what? Right. You know, how can you do that? By the way, have you ever heard the joke what's the last thing to go through a codependent's mind right before they die?
1: Mm-mm.
0: Someone else's life.
1: Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. We're like, but all the others. <laughs> like... <It's... laughs> yeah.
0: And, and the other thing that that uh I think can be a revelation to people working through their codependence. Is that focusing on other people, not in a service way, but in a, I, I want them to not experience pain or I want them to achieve something or whatever, is that it's a way of distracting them from processing their own childhood mm-hmm. pain, their own feelings of inadequacy or sadness or grief or rage. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes I think there is nothing scarier than the freshly tapped rage of a recovering codependent.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, like I know when I really first started to see it in therapy, I was pissed the F off. Thank you for (laughs) not saying
0: fuck, Marissa. I would have shut this podcast down and had you into the driveway before you knew what was happening.
1: Well, my codependent heart is so (laughs) comforted. Yeah. No, I mean, just so much anger for... You know, really being set up, I think a lot of what I'm trying to help my listeners with is just like, we really have been set up to engage in the world in a certain way that is optional. And once we discover that, we feel like dummies, Mm -hmm. right? We've been played. And also just being so angry at the messages we got the training we received, all that reinforcement, yeah. It's just like I just wanted to say no to everybody. Yeah. And no, and fuck you very much. Like, yes. Yeah.
0: Uh, two things that I would chime in with is once you realize the world isn't your responsibility, it feels a lot lighter and a lot freer mm-hmm. yeah there 's still that guilt that oh i 'm a bad person if i 'm not doing this or that, and the other thing would be when you discover that your motives were more selfish than you thought they were again, that doesn 't mean you 're a bad person mm-hmm. you 're well intentioned you 're still a you have a great human being inside you it 's just that energy needs a slight redirection, you right. know you need to pay attention to your battery,
1: right.
0: you know start listening to your body, you know start. Start noticing who 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 drains you right who who you know talks about themselves on the phone for an hour straight without asking, "How are you?"
1: Mm-hmm. and that anger, that teeny, tiny whispering anger that starts to think, "Well, they didn't ask me one question, mm-hmm. right? I think you you start to get in touch with that when before you just thought you were this amazing listener you just could listen to anybody for hours. It's like, mm, "No, you had a day too. You want to talk about your day with somebody?" Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, pay attention to that feeling of dread. It it, you know, it might be um an issue that you have that that needs to kind of just you look at it and say, "Well, that's my fear of this or that." Or maybe that dread is because that person is draining Mm -hmm. and doesn't have boundaries. And you should kind of examine that.
1: Right. Yeah. I know we – so we've talked about service, distinguishing service and codependency. So looking at your motives. And then I know someone else talked about friendship. I am 33. I've had multiple best friends. And – yeah, started going to therapy, started to address my issues at 20. And I have, I have had to let go of multiple best friend relationships after, right? I mean, they even developed, I was, I was going to therapy, right? I'm working on myself. I was attending support groups. I was building all this conscious awareness mm-hmm. and then again just creating and recreating these codependent relationships and i have let go of multiple friendships which has been so hard and so difficult but also you know when i started to let them go the fact that the other person was completely mia mm-hmm. there there's the evidence there was a suspicion, there was a feeling, there was the anger, there was the intentional, okay, like I'm really going to step away from this. And then when there wasn't any, hey, Marissa, what's going on? Like, why? There there was my answer. So, yeah, I think, unfortunately, codependency, it really, it can, it's, I. we picture an intimate partner, alcoholic and his wife. But it is so pervasive and really can be, it can manifest in friendships, at work, intimate relationships with family, with baristas, trainers. I have been the best student in every exercise class I attended, (laughs) right? Because I wanted to please the instructor, Mm -hmm. baristas, and fellow drivers. It's just, you know, you just, if you just had to... I just, I'm not, I don't have a reality TV show, but if I did, you could just watch it and be like, this is codependency. Cause just even, even coming here, Paul, I was like, okay, I need to, I need to be there on time. I still have that time thing being punctual, right? That fear, like how will I be perceived if I am late? So I'm not punctual because I want to be, I'm punctual because I'm fearful of what others will think of me if I'm not.
0: And that's such a great distinction. I mean, certainly being punctual is uh, conscientious. Mm-hmm. It's kind. It's 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 considerate. But like you said, what what is the intention behind it? Right. Um, when I was in a support group, uh, one of the resentments I shared with somebody who was mentoring me was that I had lent this person money and they had taken longer in paying me back than I thought. And this person um, that that was helping me, uh, said, you know, let's be honest, you lent that money because you wanted to look good. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? And when I really looked at it, it's like, yeah, my identity since I was a little kid is to be the good boy. Mm-hmm. And there's a price to pay for doing that. Uh literally. <laughs> literally. And you wind up finding areas uh of your life to to let your anger out. Um because you're tired of being the good boy. Mm-hmm. So it could be that, you know, you're isolating or you know, you're playing video games, you're acting out, you know, you're being cold to the to the people you love. It's going to leak out right. one way or another.
1: I ate a lot to keep that anger in, which again, that was not sustainable or healthy. And yeah, it's still you know, it's like a dam. You can put as much concrete and construction to keep water back. But if it's just, if that water is just filling up this Mm. reservoir, it's eventually going to break. So
0: what would you, if you could get in a time machine and go back and talk to yourself when, when you were, you know, at any age and you were starting to take those roles on and you were coping with food, what What would you give to your younger you or say to your younger you?
1: Yeah, I, in one of my recent episodes, I got emotional. I didn't know I was going to be. But in middle school, I, right, I think in my family, I had gotten hints and messages about being quiet, being agreeable, just really like swallowing. If and when I was upset or discontent about something. And then that was reinforced at school. I actually got in trouble and started to create a reputation with teachers for having a bad attitude. And I, different things were like threats were made about my, you know, I might have lost my my position on the cheer squad. And I took that feedback and just like completely changed how I interacted, especially with authority. And I got emotional on the podcast because I thought about, yeah, what would I say to that girl who was getting reprimanded in the vice principal's office? And I wish I had been able to sit her down and said, Marissa, fuck the cheer squad like, and your reputation. Keep speaking up. Keep speaking out. If you're uncomfortable with something – say it. But yeah, at that time, they really started to reinforce this, this belief in this rule that I had, right, where I keep saying I will be uncomfortable, but it's just like, I will go along. So you don't have any interruption, right? <clears throat> I will be agreeable to your disagreeable behavior. Like it was just so opposite to what I really wanted. And yeah, I got pushed into corners and put in situations where like to an extreme, I just was so silenced and then I finally had to like yell, right? But um, I wish I, I could have avoided all that by keep speaking up because yeah, I think I ate a lot and just kept all of it down. With just delicious cookies and ice cream and <laughs> pizza. And, but yeah, then that really weighed me down physically. I've actually, I'm about 40 pounds lighter than my top weight. So it, yeah, it just takes a toll keeping all of that in. And you have to do so much to yourself and your body in order to maintain that which, yeah, it's just not sustainable.
0: Thank you for for sharing that. Is there anything else that you'd uh, like to share about codependency or anything you want to say to the listeners?
1: Anything else about codependency?
0: What are some good resources, uh, support groups or literature?
1: Yes, so CODA, Codependence Anonymous is great. I know this past year they've had virtual meetings, which they had before. So yeah, you can really attend any CODA meeting anywhere. You can go to their website. I think it's like CODA.org. Don't quote me on that. I love Melody Beattie, Codependent No More. It was a bestseller, I think, in the 1980s. Pia Melody, she has a couple books facing codependency, right? And I'm biased, but being codependent, supporting codependence, I have gravitated towards these women who are codependent, helping codependents. And, yeah, my podcast, That's Biased.
0: And it's called Codependummy?
1: Codependummy. It's really, you know, I think it's for... I was I was on a run, and that word just came to me. But I think codependents, we tend to be very self-critical. Mm-hmm. And we call ourselves very horrible names this was kind of going along with it, like the dummy. It's a very PG way that we refer to ourselves. But I know in my twenties, again, starting to work on myself, right? Listeners who are going to support groups, the dummy aspect of it is the fact that it's starting to become conscious. And then we might still get into these relationships, recreate this drama at work or say thank you to the barista. And Mm -hmm. it's like that that's stupid. Like don't like So that's the the dummy part of it is when you really start to become aware of it, but you keep doing it. So yeah, I think a lot of my listeners struggle with that the patterns being repeated. Um but yeah those are the resources and any any last advice or
0: I would chime in with uh no is a complete sentence.
1: Right. No is a complete sentence. And you know, it's it's I I've arguably been codependent at least for twenty years. I think it really started in elementary school for me. And It has been a lot of work. It still comes up as in my getting to this interview on time today. It comes, yeah, I mean, even my podcast, right? I was worried about starting my podcast because what would people think? So it's pervasive. It's, it touches every aspect in my life. And sometimes it gets really overwhelming and discouraging, but for the listener who senses that they're codependent, is resonating with what Paul and I are saying, the the daily work that I have done the past 13-ish years, it has been so, so worth it, right? I have a podcast because I started to address it. And if I hadn't, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be sitting here with you, Paul. And I have an amazing husband who is not a homeless alcoholic, which was the resume I tended to review and approve of throughout my 20s with the men Mm -hmm. I dated. I have very healthy and honest relationships with my parents, who I talked about at the beginning and write those secrets. I'm not willing to keep those anymore. I don't put myself in situations to do that. And so it's a lot of work, right? You said you'll be dealing with your intimacy issues probably for your life, but it is so, so worth it. And there's no better time to start than now, like right, right now.
0: Marissa, thanks, thanks so much for coming by and sharing your story.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was just great. Thank you. <laughs> oh
0: my God. you didn't say that. No, you didn't. There was a touch of it, but no, no, you didn't.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Now I'm going to apologize because I'm worried about your feelings. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, we've gone to, we've gone down to the codependence rabbit hole. Yeah.
1: No, I'm sorry. Are you okay? <laughs> Oh I'm okay. Are you okay? I'm okay if you're okay. Well, yeah, I
0: got to hear your answer first. So you're okay? Okay, I'm okay. then I'm okay.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Such a fun guest. So fun. Many thanks to her. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from uh, Struggle in a Sentence Survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself whoever you want me to be. I'm a fan right away. And about her codependency, she writes, I have a twin sister. It, it is amazing, the synchronicity, the serendipity. What's the right word to use here? Then after interviewing Marissa, this one comes up. I have a twin sister who struggles with bad depression and suicidal ideation. I've lived with her for the first time since we were 18 this past year, and I struggled with codependency issues. I gave all of my time to her in hopes to save her from herself. I made myself small. I made myself nothing so that I could give her the space she needed to exist. I let my tears fall silently so they wouldn't add to the noise and the chaos. I became a container for all the emotions she could no longer carry. I held in my pain so that we could work through hers. I was filled with so much pain and hurt by the way she couldn't help me through my depression until I ended up on a 72-hour hold. Thank you for sharing that, and what a great example of, you know, the old adage they say about, you know, making sure that you're taking care of yourself before you can help others. You know, the the analogy they use is um, when they tell people that, uh, you know, if the cabin loses pressure on an airplane, to put your mask on first before you help anybody else put theirs on, because if you uh, if you got no battery, you're of no use to anybody else. This is from the love survey filled out by Betty. She writes, I love when my dogs and cats sit on me and shove their heads under my hands so I have to pet them. But I love it even more when they do this to my partner. I grew up believing it was normal for families to fight and parents to hate each other. But when I see my partner with his brother and father, I see a family so full of pure, genuine love that I can't believe my partner would date a crazy lady like me with a dump truck of baggage. I love that I have a partner that makes me feel held and seen. I love cookies with a glass of local whole milk. I love collecting agates on the beach. When I get home, I pour them onto the table like a pirate admiring their booty. And yes, I'm going to let that potential joke just sit there on the table with her agates. Agates? This is from the love survey filled out by Dino. And they write, I love people who truly feel like they understand you. Feeling heard and understood is really the greatest feeling in the world to me. Couldn't agree more, Dino. Couldn't agree more. And the feeling of being there for somebody else and helping them feel seen and heard, that's, I think, an equally great feeling. This is from a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself succulents. About her depression, she writes, My favorite flavors don't exist and no one will ever love me. About her anxiety, spending your whole life sweating. It's like a monkey living on my back that I somehow don't notice beating on my head, neck, and shoulders until someone or something else points it out. About her bulimia, Desperately trying to stop a tidal wave by throwing a rock at it. About her PTSD, I don't mind the shadows. In fact, I feel like I've become friends with them. But if I'm not careful, they will drown me. Oh, those are so good. Snapshot from her life. The thought of interacting with my parents, the main source of my PTSD, makes me shake and shudder in my heart race. I have a deep fear of being a part of my family. Not something my sisters seem to share with me. Isn't that? Thank you for sharing that. And isn't that amazing how siblings from the same family can have two completely different experiences? I'm, I mean, I know it's obvious when you know there's the golden child and the scapegoat, but um, yeah. This is from the love survey filled out by Indica, and they write. I loved the night my long-distance boyfriend met me halfway for a date night. And then after dinner, we drove around to, play, to find a place to fuck under the stars. It was so hot. When I first read that, I thought, it, I thought it said, under the stairs. It's amazing how one vowel can make something either beautiful and romantic or creepy and sad. We fucked under the stairs while the ogre cheered us on. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself I'm Slippin'. He identifies as straight, and he's in his 40s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse one time and reported it, and then another time uh, never reported it. He writes, "'My brother went crazy one summer and started terrorizing me, hitting, confining, teasing, chasing, threatening sexual violence.'" controlling some poking in private area, uh, areas. It sucks. Three years ago, I cut contact with him. Again, not because I hate him or blame him for his sickness, but because I feel unsafe around him, and my parents don't do anything to get him to be honest about it. Dude, first of all, I'm so sorry that you've experienced that, but I want to give you a fucking high five on taking care of yourself and cutting contact with him. You know, that. It it can be so hard to cut contact with family members. He's also been physically abused and emotionally abused. He writes, my brother, but also overbearing, controlling ex-wife, really messed me up for relationships even six years later. I've forgiven her, but I still get sad when I think about what could have been. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yeah, we did all kinds of fun and fulfilling things together. I miss holding her and braiding her hair. Nature walks and late night cuddle sessions, singing and laughing, watching TV. God, isn't that amazing? The, The light in the dark that can exist not only with people, but in a relationship between people, which was what makes it so fucking confusing. Darkest thoughts. I sometimes think about sex with teenage girls. It makes me feel pretty gross, but I know thoughts aren't bad, uh, but how we express them. Darkest secrets. I dated a 15-year-old when I was 20. It felt like love at the time, but looking back, my behavior mirrored that of a sexual predator. I am so ashamed by it and wish I could undo it. I don't know for certain that it messed her up, but I'm pretty sure it did, at least somewhat sexual fantasy is most powerful to you two women anal rough gagging and choking Uh, sharing that i feel pretty bad because i can't really engage in this stuff in real life so i feel like it detracts from the intimacy of my current relationship well, you know, one of the things some people will do if they feel safe enough to share it with their partner is they will share what's going on in their head, uh, you know, because a lot of people need to engage in some type of, of fantasy scenario to to reach orgasm. And sometimes, you know, if that's the case, sharing what you're thinking with your partner is a way of of building intimacy. But, uh, you know, obviously there there are some partners who might be judgmental or wouldn't understand. What if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell the woman I dated uh, when she was 15, I am so, so sorry for the way I handled our time together. I was wrong and I continued to be wrong over the rest of your life by coming around occasionally and being a bad friend. I knew I had a bad effect on you and I didn't try to talk to you about it until you cut off contact and even then I didn't do it right. I did and do love you, and I just wish there was some way I could make up for all the ways in which I hurt you. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish that my sexual problems could be fixed so I can have consistent quality sex with my current partner. I wish that my mom and brother could accept their wrongs and come clean and work to heal our family. I wish that my victim could accept that I have changed and not spread lies about me, a very upsetting situation that feels like it's ruining my life. I wish that my podcast uh, becomes successful and I can stop doing a boring day job. Have you shared these things with others i kept the secret of my relationship with the teen for years until it came out last fall then i came clean with my girlfriend and family and it's been so hard my girlfriend almost left me i lost my coaching position and i may be exposed publicly soon including a suite of false allegation allegations which scares the hell out of me this may not have happened if I told my girlfriend early on, but I got so used to keeping it a secret that it never occurred to me to share it. I've told most people about the abuse I experienced, and that's been very healing. I haven't been forthcoming about my sexual interests with my current girlfriend, and my use of pornography troubles her as my libido is so inconsistent. How do you feel after writing these things down? I'm scared. I feel like I've grown so much, become such a good and honest person, but this exposure, especially the false allegations, have me utterly terrified. In many ways, it feels as if I've wasted my life trying to be a good person, but I know the truth. I may not ever have the security of being well thought of in the public eye, but I'm still alive, and I have people who love me, and I know I'm a good person, so that's good. Ugh. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? If you've done something bad and it comes out, you aren't alone. You might lose almost everything and that sucks, but you did the thing. But you did the thing and accepting that is the best thing for you. You have to find moments every day to love yourself and get out of your own head. Do good things for other people, share your gifts with the world, and then accept that sometimes you can't run from your past. The fear of being found out is terrible, but life goes on. If you have to come clean publicly and take the consequences, that's your journey. This is what it is, and you can't run from it. Any comments to make the podcast better? I guess, go fuck yourself, question mark. Well, as it happens, I am in my go fuck yourself slippers. So, as soon as we wrap this up... um, I'm off to go fuck myself. Uh thank you for sharing all of that stuff and I uh I want to commend you on taking responsibility and seeing with clarity as painful as it is to uh own, own your past and own your behavior and to uh to try to be a better person. So thank you for sharing that. This is from the Love Survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself Con Man, is just short for Condiment Man. Uh, I assume it's a man, maybe it's not. Uh, They write, that moment when you're standing outside and you can hear the wind coming closer and closer but can't feel it yet, and when the wind does hit you, You let it embrace all of you as it's messing up your hair and the leaves are flying all around. That is such a great one. That is such a great one. I never thought about that. That that moment between hearing it and and feeling it. Thank you for that. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret Survey. Filled out by a woman who calls herself getting better but slower than I want to. Boy, do the rest of us relate to that. Uh, She identifies as bisexual and then uh, writes, but I've experienced so much sexual violence with men, I choose to identify as a lesbian. I don't think I'll ever hit a point in recovery where I can have sex with a man again. Uh, She's in her 20s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. She writes, regarding the childhood sexual abuse, my mom knew and didn't care, and I told my father as an adult, just hoping that the perpetrator dies soon and feeling zero guilt about that thought. Regarding all the sexual violence with my ex husband, I acknowledge that the marriage was abusive to some people, but I'm afraid that if I get into the crazy details, the knives and scarring, crazy shit, that no one will believe me. I didn't go to the authorities. I know how the system works and knew it would get so ugly it would hurt the career I had worked so hard for. Instead, I slipped away cleanly while he was focused on another woman. She's been physically abused and emotionally abused. My mother has Munchausen's. When I was a child, she engaged in Munchausen's by proxy, making me ill. Random pills, sleep deprivation, etc. In order to gain attention from doctors through me. She would make me ill and then use my physical vulnerability as a means to control my life until I left as a teenager. We have minimal contact now. She is clearly a very ill woman and in the grips of other addictions, uh, addiction issues as well. My father was a rageaholic, but he got better after a lengthy estrangement. My brother was very violent. People don't talk about sibling abuse enough. I'm okay now just living with moderate PTSD, but it took me three plus years of intense therapy to be able to say that. Wow. You have been through so, so much. Fuck. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Thankfully, no. Uh, Question mark. What I used to think was kindness I now know was grooming, but I do find it really hard to not take care of my mom. Darkest Thoughts. I have a wonderful therapist. She's been kinder to me than anyone in my life ever has, and sometimes she's very maternal. She gives me a taste of what having a real mom would have been like, and sometimes I wish she was my mother. I realize that's totally normal, but I feel so much shame around it. I keep reminding myself that's not the kind of life I get to have. Darkest Secrets i have or had question mark did which stands for dissociative identity disorder i'm an attorney and i was practicing before i was integrated somehow i handled sensitive cases well well while outside of work i couldn't remember where i lived wow i was so very functional while extremely sick or rather the only place i functioned was work I worried that I was constantly on the verge of committing malpractice, but I never came close. Somehow I was still good at my job. Thankfully, I shifted fields a little. Now, nothing I handle is so sensitive. Sometimes I wonder what would have happened to me if I hadn't been wired to do well in school. I probably would have wound up trafficked or dead by now. Sometimes I think God looked at my life and said, Well, Some really fucked up shit's going to happen to you and you're going to want to die for a long time and I can't prevent that, but hey, I can make sure you do okay on the LSAT. (laughs) Sexual fantasies, most powerful to you. Ugh, so much BDSM. I know that's normal for sexual violence survivors, but I still hate it. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to be able or willing to, To totally cut my mom out of my life but I'm not there yet I'm still too worried about hurting her what if anything do you wish for my own apartment so that I can finally feel safe at home Even good roommates are hard with PTSD, and I've had some shitty roommates. I don't regret my public interest career because it gives my life meaning, but I really want to make enough money that I can afford to feel safe in my own kitchen while still being able to pay for the mental health care I need. That doesn't seem like a lot to ask the universe for. Have you shared these things with others? Yeah. I coordinate and facilitate a peer support group. Thanks to that group, I have wonderful friends who understand, or at least try to. Amazing. How do you feel after writing these things down? I'm playing through a thousand scenarios about how my ex-husband could maybe come across this survey and ID me and then decide to come after me or blackmail me. If you read any of this on air, be careful, question mark. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Help people, especially help the most vulnerable people. Sponsor someone, work a crisis line, volunteer at a domestic violence shelter, help a kid with a trauma history get into college, get someone innocent out of jail, help people like you. I would have killed myself about a dozen times over if I didn't think that I had a responsibility to repair the world. You have to find something that makes the pain of being alive worth it. And find the light. Go to a garden. Climb a mountain. Find an inspirational and loving community, whether religious or artistic or at a dance club. When you've seen a lot of evil, you have to balance it out by surrounding yourself with goodness. Otherwise, the darkness will swallow you. And keep showing up to that mountain or synagogue or dance club, even when it hurts. Give the beauty a chance to heal you. That is one powerful survey, and you are a fucking badass survivor. Man, thank you for sharing all of that, and what a a great example of just putting one foot in front of the other and keeping keeping that little ember of light alive in us as much as we just want to let it go out. You would make a great guest. And then finally, this is from the Love Survey, filled out by Sexy, uh, and they write, I love when my chihuahua jumps up in my lap and balances there like hell, trying not to lick me in the face. I love finally being open and honest about my pans, pansexuality, and my wife. I love the woman in my group, the women in my group therapy. They've been there for going on four years and love and support me just as I am. And I love the blueberry brightness that takes over the sky right before the sun sets. That's so awesome. And by the way, blueberry brightness was the the name uh, I male danced under. I was not a big hit. I was not a big hit. In fact, I was fired after five minutes on stage. But I was allowed to eat the fruit. <laughs> this really, is this how you want to end the podcast? Oh, how else can I wrap this fucking thing up? salute the troops uh, sing the national anthem how about I just tell you you're not alone and uh, and I thank you for listening yeah let's do that you're not alone and thanks for listening
1: everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way